This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to this special Jubilee Weekend edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Charles Moore, former editor of The Spectator. What has the Queen's legacy been and how has she shored up the monarchy for the years to come? As Robert Hardman writes in the magazine's cover article this week, this is a monarch whose reign began in the age of ration books and steam trains. She has overseen myriad changes in Britain to the monarchy, as well as known 14 prime ministers so far. Charles, to begin with, I wonder if I can start with quite a big question to you, which is what do you think the biggest political legacy of the Queen's reign so far? Well, of course, I would disagree with the word legacy because um, she's still alive. But she's done her job and continues to do her job. And it's more than a job. It's a fundamental role in our society because she's the hereditary head of state. And to do that successfully, she has to be always behave legitimately and consider the interests of the whole kingdom and be above politics because um, she's not wielding power. She's reigning rather than ruling. And I think she's had a uniquely good understanding of that. And by her good health um, and the fact she came to the throne so young, she's had a uniquely long period in which to exercise that. And the astonishing thing about her is that she's kept the promise she made when she was 21 and which she reaffirmed in the coronation six years after that. And I think people understand that she's kept her promises. And that means that her legitimacy uh, constantly reinforces itself. And that means that we can have faith in the monarchy as a form of, if you like, ultimate government in this country. And we can believe that it delivers an odd sort of protection for our democracy. James, if I can get your thoughts on that as well. I think her greatest achievement is that constitutional monarchy is so uncontroversial in in Britain today. There is, you know, the Republican movement in Britain today is not large. It is politically uncontroversial that Prince Charles will succeed the Queen when the time comes. And I, and I think that is her greatest achievement. If you if you look at all the difficulties that, that you could have had in this period of, 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 as you said in your introduction, Cindy, huge social change in, in, in Britain. The fact is that the, the, the constitutional monarchy is an uncontroversial constant. And I think that is her greatest achievement. And I think mean, I mean, she has achieved it uh, for, but by, the, by the means of which Charles described. That, you know, I think that even people who follow the monarchy and follow politics very closely couldn't really give you any idea of where her political sympathies mm. lay. You rightly mentioned the importance of the succession in in such a system. And um, actually, that isn't easy to achieve. It's always been a problem in hereditary monarchies. In the old days, it used to be because a lot of the people who were likely to succeed died prematurely. Fortunately, that has not at all been the case now. But successions can be disputed for one reason and another. And there was a real difficulty with the death of Diana in 1997 that the succession was questioned because some people were so angry about the situation of Diana that they said Prince Charles wasn't fit to be king. And I don't believe this was really the view of most British people, but it certainly was a point of considerable controversy. An opinion poll showed that people would rather that William uh, became, went straight to the throne after the death of the Queen, missing out 
Prince Charles. Now you get into very, very dangerous territory when um, the succession, the question of who should succeed becomes a matter of dispute. And I think one of the skills of the Queen in all of this is to calm all that argument down. And she's worked very carefully to make sure that there's no doubt that it will be Prince Charles next. And she even did that in relation to the Commonwealth, which is of course not a, really a constitutional matter, but she sort of squared it with the whole of the Commonwealth a few years back. So that Prince Charles is going to become head of the Commonwealth as she is when she dies. You need some astuteness uh, in all of this, and I think she's shown it. Mm. And well, James, on the topic of succession, you just mentioned just now that we don't know what her polit- political opinions are. We probably do know some of Charles's political opinions. Is that going to be a problem? I, I think things are going to be more difficult for, for Prince Charles in two respects. One is we know what he thinks about a whole range of issues from the environment to architecture. And that will make things harder for him because even if he, as his supporters say he will, takes a very different approach when he actually becomes king, people will still know what he fought in the past. I thought it's when he delivered the opening of Parliament, the Queen's in, in, in substituted him for the Queen. Then he deliberately didn't allow any intonation or delivery in his voice, but you still couldn't help thinking on various subjects what he fought in a way that you don't with the Queen. I mean, that's the first challenge. I think the second challenge is when uh, the Queen became monarch, she, she was a young woman who hadn't, hadn't expressed any political opinions and her Prime Minister was much older than her, a much more established figure than her. When Prince Charles becomes king, he will be older than whoever his Prime Minister is, you know, whoever that is. And I think that will create a different dynamic. And while as, while as the Queen could have this particular relationship with her first prime minister i don't think charles i don't think charles will have that mm. charles you were at that state opening what, what did you make of the prince's uh, performance well i think he he did it very well actually he was dignified he read clearly and as james says nothing in his demeanor expressed any view <laughs> the sort of irony of it being the queen's speech is that the Queen mustn't be expressive, the head of state must not be expressive in anything they say, because they, they're not personally endorsing anything. They're simply reciting what the government will do. James is right that it is more difficult because Prince Charles has expressed views in the past. However, one thing needs to be borne in mind, which is that of all the people in the world who have experience of public life, two have the longest experience and one is the Queen and the next is Prince Charles. That's the funny thing, that's an extraordinary thing because he's actually been an active royal adult doing public duties since 1969. And so uh, <laughs> he, he has um, met almost as many people as the Queen um, and of course is more active than she nowadays. So you couldn't say he was in any way badly prepared for this and I think that he, he does understand the limits. Um, it's true that he does, in fact, have strong views. And despite being older, that doesn't mean that the strength of his views is necessarily lessened. But I think he is well instructed and responsible. And he's certainly public spirited. So whatever his views, nobody can say, oh, well, he supports the Labour Party. He supports the Tory party. You know, he's going to get engaged in political spats. It's not that sort of thing at all. Mm. Charles, nevertheless, the monarchy does have its critics. You write uh, in the magazine this week about the LGBT activist Peter Tatchell's boycott of the Jubilee celebrations coming up this weekend. Tell, tell us about what, why he's boycotting and what you think of it. Well, it seems rather pompous of him to boycott it because all that he did, all that happened was that he was invited to um, appear at, at the um, Jubilee pageant as a guest because he is being nominated as one of the our national treasures 
So I thought it was rather churlish of him to say, well, I'm not coming um, because the Queen's always snubbing LGBT plus people. I mean, it's not a snub to make him a national treasure. So I don't really know what he's talking about. And I felt there was a, I almost didn't write about this because I thought, you know, Mr. Tatchell's seeking a bit of publicity and I was slightly wondering whether I should give it to him. But I think um, Republicanism itself is a entirely respectable view, it seems to me, about how a country should be governed. But for all sorts of historical and cultural reasons, we've never tried it except for one disastrous period in the 17th century. Most people don't want it. The monarchy works. And a point I made in the, in the piece you're talking about, Cindy, is that if you look at the most free and stable countries in the world, I mean, the really top of the list, the sort of top 15, an actual majority of them, a majority of them are monarchies. And these are all democratic countries. So the idea that there's sort of um, some uh, necessary conflict between monarchy and democracy is disproved by the facts, even if it might sound right in theory. Mm, James, what do you make of that? Because, I mean, there's something we've been talking about in the office this week, that the alternative would be some kind of president who will probably be kind of political and therefore divisive. I have a kind of certain intellectual sympathy for republicanism. But I also think that, as Charles says, that as, as democratic politics has become more and more divisive, I think there is a benefit in having someone who can stand above that and act as a kind of unifying national symbol. I think if you think back of all the prime ministers of the Queen's reign, it's very hard to see who of them, and I think it becomes increasingly hard as her reign goes on, of who of them could have stood as as unifying national figures who everyone would have been happy to say, they are, that is my head of state. And so I think that the, the, the monarchy, as Charles says, even if in theory it shouldn't work, in practice it works. And, and, and arguably, and this is not a view I would have held until relatively recently, arguably I think it actually strengthens democracy because it allows your democratic politics to be combative and disputatious, you know, and, and the House of Commons separated by its sword length and all that. But without that undermining people's sense of, uh, of national identity or belonging, mm. because there is this figure above politics who is, is always the head of state and whose, whose views on, on, on a whole host of issues people have no idea about. Mm. Well, James, just, is there a case for reform, though, even if one is uh, still a monarchist? Should it be cut down a bit smaller in size? Or, uh, you know? The monarchy is slimming down. In that, if you think about what we think of the monarchy today, look at the fact that you know Harry and Meghan are now in in, in California and no longer working royals. It has become a smaller line, essentially down the line of succession, mm. and and I think that I suspect we will see more of that. And I also think that you know it is it is it is, it is not a secret that Prince Charles favours a more slimmed down monarchy based more directly around the line of succession. Mm. Charles, you're also a biographer of Margaret Thatcher, and I wondered if you might talk a little bit about the relationship between her and the Queen. You've written in the past that there is an odd, interesting parallelism between the two women. Yes. Anyone who's seen The the Crown will see a depiction of the relationship between Mrs Thatcher and the Queen, which is fundamentally, and in some respects, grossly inaccurate. The one thing that's uh, right in The Crown is that Mrs. Thatcher was sort of nervous in the presence of the Queen, partly, I think, because of her background as a grocer's daughter, questions that arise, and partly because of her sex, because of questions that arise for a woman prime minister with the Queen that didn't arise with a man, like exactly what do you wear? All 
male prime minister needs to do is sort of polish his shoes, which I admit <laughs> is something Boris might find difficult, but uh, is not is not a sort of overwhelming problem. Whereas Mrs. Thatcher had to think, you know, she's virtually the same age as the Queen. How do I dress? Obviously, I must dress smartly, but I mustn't dress smarter than the Queen. I have to try and think about colours and gloves and all sorts of things. I think it made her nervous. The whole thing about these two women being at the apex of the two the two hierarchies of, of in public life, one uh, the formal head of state and one the political head of government. They're both women in a male world. Um, it's a very odd, it's, in fact, it's a unique situation. And I think Mrs. Thatcher was a little bit uneasy about it. She had huge respect for the queen, but she didn't find it easy to talk to her. She wasn't quite sure what she should be saying to her. And I don't think she sort of confided in her in the way that some prime ministers do. And I think the Queen possibly found it somewhat difficult to adjust as well, because she had never had the experience with working with a woman in, in, in that sort of way. It was unknown ground uh, for her, too. There were disagreements, and the most important ones when the Queen got worried that Mrs Thatcher's attitude to sanctions against South Africa was going to split the Commonwealth, because the Queen is always concerned about the Commonwealth. She wasn't imposing her own view Mrs. Thatcher on the issue about sanctions, she was the um, queen. She was um, worried about disunity, and she talked to Mrs. Thatcher about that. And it wasn't wholly satisfactory. They did disagree, and of course that was somewhat concealed their disagreement, but it was real. But the important point I think to ultimately to bear in mind is that Mrs. Thatcher and the Queen had great mutual respect, and increasingly, I would say, good personal relations as the years passed. And the the, the test of that really was that. First of all, she gave her the Order of Merit. Uh, secondly, she came to Mrs. Thatcher's 70th birthday party and her 80th birthday party, which were up both after she left office. And finally, and most important, she came to her funeral. And the Queen never goes to any funerals of prime ministers, uh, the only other exception being Winston Churchill. So it was a very clear message coming out of that about the importance she attributed to Mrs. Thatcher and a clear mark of respect. And I must say, as a biographer of Mrs. Thatcher, I always found it incredibly frustrating because what you want to do when you're talking to your subject is find out about their relations with the sovereign. And Mrs. Thatcher was discreet to the point of madness about um, the Queen. And you can talk to all other prime ministers and they'll say a few things about what it's like to deal with the Queen, but Mrs. Thatcher absolutely wouldn't go there. And this was her sort of super correctness, really constitutional correctness. Mm. Uh, James, it does seem like we may have a new prime minister at some point in the not too distant future. How important do you think this relationship between the monarch and the head of government is? And just looking ahead, you know, we might have another pair of women at the top. I think it is the huge experience that the Queen has. You know, it, 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 the other day at Cabinet, Boris Johnson said, who here remembers the 1970s? Well, he barely remembers the 1970s, but the Queen will remember the 1970s better, I suspect, than, than, than anyone in Whitehall. And the political arguments and battles of that time. So I think it is that, that breadth of experience. I think it is also, I think particularly in, in, in modern politics, people never know who is going to leak details of their conversation. Who can they truly confide in? I think the Queen is obviously uh, someone who, who, who you can, as Prime Minister, you can talk to almost as your confessor with a total confidence that the, that these, the secrets and details of this conversation will never be divulged. And I think that that is, I mean, that, 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 that element of the relationship, I think, is, is 
fundamentally important. I think you know, if you talk to people around David Cameron, you know, and the the Scottish referendum in 2014, mm. you know, one of the things that they the sheer dread factor of having to call the Queen and say, um, I'm terribly sorry, but the United Kingdom is no longer the United Kingdom because Scotland has voted for independence, was one of the things that that most most terrified them about that whole situation. And I think there is a restraining act on the behaviour of prime ministers that you will have to actually explain what you're doing to the Queen at some point. The, the theory of a good chap's constitution has taken a, a, a rubbishing in, in recent years. But, but I do think there is an, that, that element does provide a kind of constraint on how prime ministers behave. I think that this really, I, and I think, that, you know, obviously, if, if you were to have a, uh, if the Queen was to have another prime minister to deal with, I, I think because of her huge seniority and, you know, as this as this weekend will make clear, the, the huge respect and affection in which she is held by the country. I suspect that would be a particularly deferential relationship. Charles and James, thanks very much. For this week only, to celebrate the Queen's Jubilee, we're offering you the chance to subscribe to 10 weeks of the magazine, in print and online, for just £1. Not only that, we'll also send you a commemorative tea towel to mark this historic moment. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash jubilee. Hurry though, this offer ends on Monday. Thank you.